0: I'm fairly certain this will be the first December that I've been at a church, whether preaching or attending, that the sermon series was in the book of Genesis. And I mentioned earlier in announcements that we're going to continue through the book of Genesis, even though I know it's the Christmas holiday and it's normally an Advent season and many churches oftentimes take a little break from whatever they're currently doing to do something for Christmas But one of the reasons why Adam said earlier that we're going to sing Joy to the World every week is because of that third verse. His blessings will flow because of the gospel far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. So no more let sins and sorrows grow because Christ has come. And his coming will have an impact far as the curse is found. So why do we need to change the sermon series when we have the gospel of Christ's coming and why Christmas is so important in such a special time right here in Genesis chapters 1 through 3? So I want us to dive right in with this first week. And I want us to think about something, my guess that many of you, unless you've had some sort of biblical training, or you've been a Christian for a long time, or you read a lot, my guess is you don't normally think about what we're going to talk about today when you think of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. A lot of us think about creation. We think about marriage, the image of God, manhood, womanhood, all of those things we've covered over the last few months, and we've worked our way through the first two chapters of Genesis. One of the things we've not addressed but I think is important enough for us to take a whole week on is the idea that in Genesis 1-3, through 3, there is a covenant. And so I want to do a little bit of arguing for the case of a covenant first. I want us to look at the actual covenant itself second. And then thirdly, I want us to apply the implications of it. So if you're wondering in terms of that outline flow. We're going to first argue for it, and we're going to look into the scriptures at a few reasons for why Genesis 1-3 through has a covenant. That will be a little more Bible-heady. And then we're going to look at the story of the actual covenant that's happening between God and Adam. So that will be more illustrative. And then finally, it'll be more the cash value of like, okay, why am I listening to this? Why does this matter? That'll all come toward the end, mostly. So just so you know, that's the flow of where things will go this morning, and if you tune out earlier, then you may miss why it matters later. So let's dive in right away with first the argument and the case made for a covenant in Genesis 1 through 3. Scan your eyes through page 1, 2, and 3, and you will not find the word covenant in the English, or if you have a Hebrew Bible in front of you, or in the Hebrew It doesn't appear in the first three chapters, which is why many people don't think there is a covenant in Genesis 1 through 3. I'm going to argue that the reality is there even though the word is not. You don't need the word covenant to mean that there's actually a covenant going on. So let's look at Genesis chapter 2 and let's look at verse 24, the last passage that we've looked at together. You see where it says, a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, what is that? Is it a marriage? Well, the word's not there. The word marriage is not in this text, but I don't think anybody's going to sit here and argue, well, that's not a marriage because the word marriage isn't there. Let's take it a step further. What is a marriage? Is it a sacrament? is it a contract? You no, know, here at Embassy Church, several different times we've explained that marriage is a what? A covenant. Well, I don't see covenant in here. Where are you getting that idea from? Are you guys looney tunes like I am? Or is this actually taught in the Bible? Well, in fact, it is taught in the Bible that marriage is a covenant. I want to read you a passage. I'd encourage you to maybe just jot this down. It's in the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. This is Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. Listen carefully. Malachi 2, verse 14. The Lord has a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You and the wife of your youth. To whom you have been faithless, So God is talking to the men of Israel and saying, "You have been faithless to your wives' men. She is your companion, and she is your wife by a covenant." So there you have a great example in the Bible, later on, looking kind of back at to Genesis and describing that the marriage relationship in Genesis 2:24 is a covenant relationship. And that's where we get the idea. Not only that, but a covenant by definition is a binding relationship that mixes law and love together so that people are bound together by that law in a loving relationship. That sounds like a marriage because that's what a marriage is because that's what a covenant is. So that's our first objection is that, well, the word's not there. And the answer that we give is that the reality is there. The reality is here in Genesis 2 as we will shortly see and so you don't need the word. The first time you do see the word turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 6 verse 18. Genesis chapter 6 verse 18. This is the first time you see the word covenant in all the Bible and it's talking to Noah and notice that God says, I will establish my covenant with you, speaking of Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives. What's interesting about the way this is described is it's not I am starting a brand new covenant, if you wanted to really add some words in there. That's not the idea communicated here. When it says establish my covenant, it's the word to say I'm continuing an already established covenant covenant. So that begs the question, where's the covenant that's already been established before Noah? Answer, the covenant made with Adam. So that would be another reason to argue that even though the word covenant isn't used, it is used in Genesis 6 to talk about an already established covenant. If that's not convincing so far, I would turn your attention, and again, I just encourage you to write this down. I'll I'll read it briefly Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. In the same way that marriage later on in the Bible is referred to as a covenant, in the same way Adam's covenant with God is referred to as a covenant, this relationship between God and Adam is described in Hosea 6, verse 7 as a covenant. So listen as I read. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God's speaking to Israel. He's saying, I don't just want your animal sacrifices. I want you to love me in a loving relationship. I don't just want your burnt offerings. You have rejected me. This relationship is broken. He's speaking to them. And then he says in verse 7, but just like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They have dealt faithlessly with me. Just like Adam, they have broken the covenant. Because Adam was in a covenant, and he broke a covenant. He disobeyed, and it was a covenant relationship with God. So that would be another argument, Hosea chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. The last argument I want to give, and there's more that we could talk about this, but I'm hoping just to lay a a basic groundwork for this covenant idea, is that all the major covenants of the Bible have a key covenant head, a person, a covenant representative. So think about the covenants in the Bible. Noah and the covenant with creation and the rainbow that was just read about. Noah is the key figure as the covenant head. And he says, I'm going to make the covenant with you. But that covenant is not just for Noah. It is for the whole earth. And Noah is a representative of all humanity in this covenant. What's the next major covenant? A covenant made with a man named Abraham. At that time, his name was Abram, and then his name was changed to Abraham. And he is going to be the father of many nations, and he is the covenant head of the family of the nation of Israel. So he is a representative in that covenant. And then you keep going down the line, and you know that God speaks to Moses, and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you and with all of the Israelites. And he has that covenant on Mount Sinai, and the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments. The last Old Testament covenant that's a major covenant is the covenant made with David. And this is the covenant of the dynasty and the house of God that will last forever and ever and ever. So you have a covenant head, David, the first covenant head of this kingdom. And it's passed down through those different kings, ultimately to King Jesus, which is our last covenant head. You get to the new covenant promise that's made. The new covenant head is Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Through his blood, he becomes the new representative to all who put their faith in him. And all of these covenants that I just mentioned, all these major covenants with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and with David, all of them are having their kind of crescendoing effect when they reach the final fulfillment of the new covenant. And Jesus becomes the new covenant head for all of those covenants. At this point, it makes sense then... That if Adam is a covenant representative or he is a representative of all of humanity and that the Bible refers to, hey, just like Adam was like this, so Jesus is like this. Did you notice that Tessa, when she opened our worship service, she read from Romans chapter 5. So in your bulletin you have that Romans 5 verse 12. In the same way that Adam sinned and death and the curse of the covenant came to all men, So much more and so much better, Jesus Christ, his obedience, not his disobedience, but his obedience in contrast, is now going to lead life to all men. So all who would put their faith in Jesus, they will now have a new covenant head. So if you make a contrast with Jesus and Adam, then obviously Adam must be the covenant head representative for all of humanity. Otherwise, that whole argument in Romans 5 doesn't work. I want to briefly pause here because this is a moment where people sometimes struggle. Maybe if you're thinking about it right, you're struggling. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 is essentially saying that part of the problem we have is that your covenant head is Adam in the garden. Your problem is not just that you sinned. Now, a lot of us, I hope in this room, hopefully all of us, will admit Have you ever done anything wrong and you've sinned? You've hurt other people? There's evil in you? But that's not your only problem. That is a problem. I don't want to demean or diminish the problem of your sin in your heart. But you have another problem. This is the problem that most people don't normally talk about unless they're into theology stuff. You have a problem that Adam is your covenant representative. And when you're an American where you're an individualist, when you don't like the idea of being represented by somebody else, this is when we have problems with this. What? Why am I held responsible for the actions of some guy thousands and thousands of years ago? That's preposterous. Any of you feeling that? I don't want what Adam and Eve did in the garden to have any impact on me. Well, it has. Because of that one man's sin, death has come to all men. We are all experiencing every time death happens the effects of being under the covenant of Adam. Having him as our covenant head and experiencing the curse of that covenant. Some of you might be thinking, well, I want to just be judged by what I do. Well, how about this? How about you and God have a conversation and you go tell God, And tell him, God, I would like to be judged just on what I do. And if you would, could you just get rid of everybody else in the world and we'll just start over with me? How's that going to go? God's going to look at you and say, I already tried that. It didn't work out so well. Do you guys know what the story of the flood was all about? God was saying, I need to get rid of evil in the world. How am I going to do that? when evil is in each and every one of you. So he starts over with one family, one man named Noah that was righteous, more righteous than anyone else. And guess how the story ends in Genesis chapter 9. At Someday, through this series, we'll get to Genesis 9. But until then, a little sneak preview. In Genesis 9, he ends up naked and ashamed. Interesting, isn't it? as Noah is the new Adam, the new human head that's going to start over with the whole earth in the same way that Adam ends his story with a shameful, sinful nakedness. Read Genesis chapter 9 and see that Noah builds a vineyard, gets himself drunk, passes out naked in a tent, and his sons have to cover over his shame. It's the same exact story. So whether it's Noah or whether it's you, you need to realize that your own sinning, you too would have failed in that garden. On the other hand, the good news that you could have Jesus Christ as your covenant head won't be applied to you if you don't want a representative and you just want to be by yourself. This is the much greater point because many of us are thinking, I just want what's fair. And that little covenant system, that doesn't sound fair, Pastor Phil. Oh, you don't want what's fair. God gives you something that is ridiculously unfair. And what he gives you is a new covenant head through Jesus Christ. That's really unfair that you and I can be united to Jesus by faith and faith alone, not by works, not by your covenant keeping, not by your faithfulness, but his faithfulness. If you want to no longer be represented by Adam, I don't want to be associated with him, then don't be associated with him. Put your faith in Jesus and you no longer will be associated with Adam. You will be in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news that we have every single day to preach to ourselves, to our neighbors, and to the nations. There is a new covenant head, and death will not win. Jesus has won. It is not fair. It is scandalous grace, lavish love, unbelievable mercy. That's what Romans 5 is all about when it says that his one act of obedience will be given to you so that you will have life and righteousness. Not fair. So I ask you, which covenant family do you want to be part of? If you keep living your life and act like you're just going to live however you want to live, then you're going to be underneath the covenant curse of Adam. If by faith... You look to Jesus, repenting of your sin and your pride and your rebellion, and say, God, I don't want to be associated with Adam and his covenant anymore. That moment, instantaneously, he says, you're justified, declared righteous. So there's our argument for the covenant. That's our first little section. In summary, the word's not there, but the reality is there. And that's what we're going to see next in our second section of this message. The word is there in other parts of Scripture. Genesis 6 talks about an already established covenant. And Hosea chapter 6 also talks about the covenant made with Adam. And then lastly, this whole idea of covenant heads that the whole gospel is sitting on, this foundation of Jesus Christ, our covenant representative, makes no sense in Romans 5 unless Adam is our covenant head. There's the summary argument for the covenants. Now let's look at Genesis 2 and the specific verses where we see the account of the covenant. And we're going to see this in verses 15, 16, and 17. These are the key verses. There's other things we could see in Genesis 1, the image of God. I think you can make an argument for the covenant there and we could talk about that. But I want us to look at these verses because we've not spent as much time on them in the previous week. So let's look at verses 15 through 17. I'll read them. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It probably doesn't strike you as very covenant like, but all the elements are there. You have God putting the man in the garden, and this is not just. drop him in the garden. In fact, the word put is described earlier in this text. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when it says that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils. And then verse 8, it says that he planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man that he had formed. That's just kind of your general word for plop. I just put you in the garden. Verse 15 is a different word. It doesn't just mean put, it means he rested him there with an idea of safety and security. It also is a word used to dedicate something. So it's like, we're going to dedicate you being into this garden. This is special. The only other times we see this word um, in terms of its usage, one of the examples is when the Israelites are put into the land of Canaan, the promised land. So very much, uh, I think, a helpful image for us to see that when God puts, he's dedicating, he's safely placing in security Adam into this garden. So immediately we see a loving relationship between God and man. Then we see a task that's been given, and we talked about this in previous weeks about manhood, to work and keep could also be translated serve and guard or worship and obey. By the way, some of you may not have noticed this prior, but look at verse 24 of chapter 3, just a page over in your Bible. You'll notice that he drove the man out of the garden after Adam fell, and then the cherubim and a flaming sword is there, and it's guarding. It's that same word that we see in verse 15 to work and to keep is to guard the garden. That was what Adam's job was in Genesis 2 verse 15, and he failed to do that. And so that's why you see this cherubim placed with a flaming sword to now guard the garden. Verse 16 shows that God gives him a specific command. If there's this idea of worship and obey, if there's this idea of serve and guard God in the garden, It makes sense that verse 16 would then have a commandment. Here's what he is to do while he's there. He is to eat of every tree in the garden freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day of it you shall surely die. Literally, you would read this. The Why it's surely is because it's dying you will die. So that sounds a little weird so in english they just say you will surely die you will certainly die dying you will die if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil did you know that there are two trees two special trees there were a lot of trees obviously in verse 16 it says you can eat of all the different trees but notice that there's two special trees in verse 9 Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now notice, there was the tree of life. That's tree number one. That was in the middle or in the midst of the garden. And then there's a second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes because of all the attention given to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we sometimes get this image that there's just one special tree in the middle. There's actually two. Two special trees. One of them called the tree of life, and one of them called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What are these trees about? Well, I think they both are representative of what God will do when God and humans are in this covenant relationship in harmony with one another and the effects of them. So they're free to eat of the tree of life, which means as they eat of it, I'm not certain that it means that this is like a special, magical tree that they eat the fruit, it's like, ooh, I got magic powers. I think it just means that God will allow them, as they're in harmony with him, to have eternal life and keep eating from the tree of life. It's, it's the symbol of that eternal life in the garden. In the same way, I don't think that the fruit of the other tree has some sort of poison in it, that if they eat it, ah, oh, they're dead. It's not what happens in the story, as we see in the next chapter but it represents the supreme wisdom and the knowledge of good and evil, which only God has as judge over everything. So one tree represents the eternal life that only God can give, and the other tree represents the supreme knowledge of good and evil that only God has. One tree they can eat from freely, the other tree they are to stay away from, because to do so would be to say, I want what only God has. I would like to be God himself. And that's exactly what we see as the story goes on. As we read in Genesis chapter 3, look what happens in the conversation between the serpent and the woman. Did God actually say in verse 1 that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said back to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. That's true. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. She's speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then notice she says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, the neither touch it is not anywhere in the command in verse 16 and 17. Do you find it interesting that humans want to add laws to God's law? Or does that make a lot of sense? We like to make extra rules. So whether Adam added that, whether Eve added it on the spot, we don't know. All we know is that that rule is not given in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 2. Maybe Adam says, don't even touch it, woman. (laughs) Who knows? But the serpent said to the woman in verse 4, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, wise like the true wisdom of God, that she was seeking. The woman saw that it was good. Did you see that? She's determining what's good now. Up till this point, who's the only one in Genesis 1 and 2 who says what's good and what's not good? In the beginning, he created. After the first day, it was good. It was good. It was very good. After day six, Chapter 2, he says, it is not good for man to be alone. He determines the knowledge of what is good and what is not good. So here you see the very heart of what is happening, that the woman has decided, I'm going to determine what is good. I'm going to be the judge. It reminds me of that famous poem, maybe you've heard it, Invictus. I'll read the first and last verse. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. It's a little arrogant. Unconquerable soul. And here's how the famous poem ends. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. You heard that before? That's what Eve decided right then and there, and that's what you and I have continued to decide when we said, I'm going to determine what's best. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. They were tempted to be like God. The funny thing is what? The funny thing is this. They already were like God. Genesis 1 says that God made male and female in his image. They already were. They already had a lot of God's image reflected in who they were. They did not become God when they ate and their eyes were opened. But we do know that that choice, that moment that they took that fruit and ate of it, it was the moment of all moments where they decided right then and there, it is not good for me to submit to God and his law. I'm going to be the one who's in control. Look over at chapter 3, verse 22. Notice what the Lord says, Behold, the man has come like one of us in knowing good and evil, lest he reach out his hand and take also, see notice the second tree, the tree of life, and eat and live it forever. Here is the interesting thing when you understand there's two trees. He's saying we can't have a humanity that lives forever and ever that thinks that they're God and perpetually makes decisions, eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where they think that they're the captain of their own soul. That would be hell. Sure enough, I think that might be one of the best ways to think about what hell actually is. People living forever and ever, but them not acknowledging, submitting, or obeying anything that God says. Imagine a room full of people. And all of them are type A captains. Type A, I'm going to make decisions and be in charge. And nobody wants to submit to anyone else whatsoever. A bunch of leaders, no followers. Is anything good going to get done? You ever been in rooms like that where there's just two of them? Well, how about a whole group of them? God says that can't happen. We can't let humanity continue to live in that state and let them keep eating from the tree of life. Therefore, we must banish them from the garden. This is why this being sent out of is so important. They can't have eternal life. They will surely die. I think that's why we understand this idea of their death, not to be an immediate, oh, I'm dead as soon as I ate it, but rather They died as they were removed from the presence of God and had no ability to eat from the tree of life and have eternal life. And surely they did die. Physically, spiritually, all sort of ways you could think about death, they experienced it. When you turn your Bibles to page 4 in Genesis chapter 5, you hear these words again and again as you hear the genealogy of Adam This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made them in his likeness. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them. He named them man. And then he starts going through the lists of these different people. And then notice, thus all the days of Adam, in verse 5, were 930 years, and he died. And then drop down to verse 8. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And you keep reading that he died. He died he died this is supposed to be a sobering chapter when you get to chapter 5 you will surely die it's not just a spiritual death it is a physical death they died not being able to eat from the tree of life they experienced the curse and they were removed from the garden and had no longer access that wonderful gift proud human beings who think they know better living forever would be an eternal hell so do you realize that one day you will surely die do you realize that god's word is true that when he told adam and eve you will surely die that's exactly what happened And in the same way, Hebrews chapter 9 tells each one of us that you have a day appointed that you will die. You will live once. You will die and then you will face judgment. Friends, are you ready for that day? Are the people of the nations ready for that day? This is why we send missionaries like we are today. Because every day, thousands upon thousands, thousands of people are dying. And they have no hope in Jesus Christ. No reverse of the curse, no new covenant head. They just die in their sin. I don't know if there's a sadder thought and therefore a more urgent need than for us to pray for and send out more and more people to the mission field. Not just around the nation's but this is true of our friends, our families, and our neighbors. We will surely die. So I want us to be prepared for that day. So our third and final point is the application of the covenant. We have seen the argument that there is, in fact, a covenant relationship between God and Adam, and therefore all of humanity in the Garden of Eden. And we saw how that covenant was cursed, covenant was was broken and then the curse of the covenant was experienced. So what does this mean for us? If a covenant is a binding relationship between God and his people or two parties and it has blessings for those who keep the covenant and curses and consequences for those who don't keep the covenant, we can understand very simply, if you want just a real easy takeaway for you, a covenant with God and a covenant, in general, is about law and love, as we've mentioned earlier. Law and love. But notice how these two things work together in a covenant. The law is given to protect and define the nature of the relationship. Therefore, the law is good. The law here from God is given in verse 17. 16 and 17. To define the relationship between Adam and God. Why does God give this command? A lot of philosophers and theologians have asked these questions for forever. Why is there that one tree that they're not allowed to eat of? And what's the common response? Whether it's a good one or not, the common response is, well, they have to have choice. Have you heard this before? In order for man to love God, they have to have a choice and freely make that choice And so, therefore, God's putting a test before them. Whether or not that's a good way to describe it, I think if we think about it like a covenant, we understand that the law is given as an act of love by God because a covenant is a law and love combination, just like a marriage is. When you say on your wedding day, I will be with you till death do us part, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, All of those vows that are being made, that is a law, a binding relationship that you are making a vow in front of all these people, I will stick with you. That law is defining and it is informing the relationship of love between these two people in the same way. That's exactly what's happening here. The blessing of the relationship is being protected by him telling him, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm God. I have supreme wisdom. I am the only judge. You are the creatures who are made in my image. And so therefore, we need to keep that distinction clear and these laws obeyed so that our relationship will work together. The other thing we need to realize is the generosity and love of these commands. Almost all the attention I feel like a lot of times is put on the Negative command, the prohibition. Do not eat of that tree. But what did he say right before that? The first command God gives in this covenant is eat. Eat of every tree. Do you realize that God is providing abundantly all kinds of food that is good and delightful? And he is saying, have your fill. Enjoy This world that I made is good, and there will be different kinds of trees. There will be fruit trees and fig trees, and there will be different tastes, and you'll have a tongue, and you'll have taste buds, and you get to enjoy, and as you enjoy that, you realize I made you that way, and you're going to worship and delight in me in the garden as you eat of all of these trees. When we read this command, we should see the abundant goodness of God. The generosity of God, the provision of God, not the cosmic killjoy. Well, why isn't he letting me eat from that tree? Gosh, that just shows how messed up we are when we think that way. The whole point of this covenant relationship in Genesis 1 and 2 in particular is to describe the paradise-like place where this is wonderful and man is God good. Man is he worthy of our trust. God made you in his image. You're not slaves. Do you remember from a few weeks back? All the different gods of those days, what did they make humans for? When Marduk made humans, he called them slaves. Is that what you see in Genesis 1? This covenant relationship is between master and slave. No. Between king and prince and princesses. This gift of this covenant relationship is Jaw-dropping, awesome, good. This God is good. We are so mistaken if we think that God is somehow keeping something from them. No, he's just keeping the idea that you can't be God and creature. That doesn't work. There's only one God who's the center of the universe, and that's not you. If you want to be the center of the universe, make a new universe and be the center of it. I made this one and I'm the center of this one. You're creature, I'm creator. He's defining and establishing that relationship by telling them, now that's why you can't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't have supreme wisdom and knowledge to be God. It's not for you to have. That's the only thing he commands. Why in the world would we balk against that or object to the fact that he made this gorgeous gold filled garden? Yes, gold. Read verses 10 through 14. There's gold everywhere. There's trees. There's streams of water. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. They're naked and unashamed, frolicking around a garden. What could be better? This is a great place. Now, the reason I'm trying to belabor this point is because it should mark us as just preposterous and crazy. Why? Why would you give that up? Why would you choose anything else? Why would you not trust this God? Look how good he has been. Look at all the blessings that he is giving in this covenant relationship. Look how many blessings that you will keep for forever if you continue in this covenant relationship. That's why sin should so be exceedingly gross in our minds. The backdrop of Roman, of Genesis chapter three is Genesis one and two, and this good, gracious, provision, giving, life. Wonderful God. He doesn't hold anything back other than the very idea of himself. You can't be God. So are you learning? that God's laws then in the same way that this law and these commands are for Adam and Eve's good? All of God's commands are for your good? Are you realizing that the God who gave those commands is just trying to protect you and help you and define what the relationship should look like between you and him? Are you starting to feel sick? Sick of your own sin that in light of all that God has given you, You still sin against him. It's a sickening thought to me. He didn't just give me a garden, He gave me Jesus Christ in another garden, where in that garden, Jesus took on all the curses of all the covenants, of all the broken promises that we made to God. And they fell on His head as He sweat, drips of blood in that garden. Our new covenant head, Jesus, didn't deserve to die but he did on my behalf. He defeated death so that when that day comes when I die, nobody needs to feel as if there's no hope beyond the grave. We can rejoice because of resurrection. And all of that, my friends, that I just described is already done, already given, already deposited into your spiritual bank account, sealed, with his blood, by his Holy Spirit, nothing can touch it, nothing can take away from it, done deal. That's how good your God is. And that's why at the very root of your sin, every single time you choose no and disobey his commands, yes, it's a slap in his face, but at its very heart, it's unbelief. Is it pride? Yes, it's pride. But at its very root, you want to sever the root of sin in your life, the very root of your sin is your failure to believe that the God who gave that command is good. So overwhelmingly good to try and provide for you joy and life and protection. Not take away, but to give. And define what a good working relationship would be like. You don't believe Him. When you choose sin, every time it's you saying to God, Yeah, I'm going to choose what's good and evil right now. I'm going to make that choice, call my own shots here. Just don't trust that God's commands are good, plain and simple. So then what is the antidote to your sin? If at the very root of it, at the heart of it, how do we sever that root? When you pull the weeds out, when you're gardening. I'm not a gardener, but I know enough about gardening that when you pull the weeds out, If it leaves a big hole, you need to put new seeds in and new plants to fill in the gap so that way there can be no more room, no more space for any of those weeds to come back. That's what you do. The antidote to your unbelief and sin is to fill up your heart with more and more evidences of the goodness of God. Remind yourself, remind others, come to church, sing songs to yourself, sing songs all week. That's why we sing songs, so hopefully they get stuck in your head and you're reminded how good he is. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. He has provided all that I've ever needed. Now, if you're living in that spirit moment by moment, do you think that you're going to be really prone to distrust and rebel against God? I'd be like, no, he's good. And even though I don't like this particular command, it's for my good because I trust him. This is how it works, my friends. This is why this covenant relationship applies to us. We have made the same mistake as Adam and Eve over and over again. In our pride and in our unbelief, we have not acknowledged God or given thanks to him. If you want to do some further reading today, read Romans chapter 1 starting in verse 18 and see if this is not the exact same way that Paul defines sin. The wrath of God is being revealed to all mankind and is being poured out on mankind because of their suppressing the truth. Suppressing what truth? Suppressing the truth about the goodness of God. Why do you say that, Pastor Phil? Because Paul keeps going and he says, those people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they don't acknowledge God and they do not give thanks to him. Isn't that interesting? The wrath of God is being given out to a bunch of people that aren't thankful? That seems a little petty. No, it's not. A lack of gratitude and discontentment is at the heart of all of your sinning and all evil in the world if we knew and acknowledged how good God was, there's no chance any of us would be sinning the way we do. So think about it for a second. How good has God been to you? In your own personal life, your own personal testimony? How good has he been to your friends, your family, this church family? How good has he been, even if you're looking at your list of good blessings and you're like it's not very long i'm feeling like my cup is empty you go look to the cross of jesus christ and, and that cup is full with every spiritual blessing you could ever imagine and dream of he has given you so much we should be overfilling in our cups of joy and satisfaction and contentment that there would be no room for us to look and be like but i want more God, all that you gave me in the garden wasn't enough. That's what Eve was saying in that moment. I don't want all those other trees. I want this tree. You're holding back from me, God. That's that's the lie from Satan. No, he, he is good. His word is good. His blessings are good. Choose the goodness of God and preach it to each other day after day know that we regained the access to the tree of life, the eternal life that is available to us. Remember that tree that we were closed off to, Adam was kicked out of? That tree is back. You know where it's at? It's the cross. The judgment tree became a tree of life so that you and I, when we gaze on the cross of Christ, we now are taking hold of the fruit of the tree of life so that you will have eternal life. Jesus hung on a cursed tree of judgment so that we could have a tree of life to eat from day after day and week after week. He was banished from the presence of God. He was exiled and sent away from the Father so that you and I could be brought near into his presence. We were under the covenant curse of Adam. He was our representative, but now we have Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you so, so much. We want to thank you for how good you are. How good is your faithfulness to keep your promises? Have you ever broken a promise? Thank you, God. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for the cross that becomes our tree of life that even now as we take the bread and the cup we have a tangible tree to eat and drink from. Sealed by your blood, eternal life given to us. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the ways that we have sinned against you. Even in light of all that you've given us